It's been a while now. It's been like two years, but we had this uh, Nick at Night. Do you remember that? It was like Easter two years ago, and uh, we spent some time with the children celebrating Nicodemus and Jesus's conversation at night with Nicodemus. So it just makes sense, and he's such a big part of the uh, series that we're working with, The Chosen. It just makes sense that we would spend a day talking about a divine encounter of Nicodemus with Jesus. How many of you kind of fallen in love with this uh, series? Yeah, isn't it great? Yeah. Um, Someone came up to me today and they said, I just get so emotionally attached to this Jesus who is both emotionally gripping, but humorous and inviting, you know, and that's, that's really what we find in this in this series. So we're going to have a long clip today of Nicodemus's conversation with Jesus the night that um, we get the John 3.16 passage, the most famous passage. So I want to dive into it, talk about it as we get into it, and then watch it and come back to kind of the end of Nicodemus's life. Does that sound good? Does that sound good today? So um, if you got your hand out with you, there'll be a few nine blanks to fill in. They all begin with the letter I, just because it makes it easy for me to, uh, to do. And we're, we're going to think about this, um, you know, Jesus told this parable of the net when he was standing in the boat with Peter. He told the parable of the net. Some of you know this, where he says, you know, the net gathers all kinds of fish and then they have to be sorted out. But the net's job is to get as many and as broad a reach as possible. And that's what Jesus was about. That's what he says the kingdom is about. Nobody's excluded from the reach of the kingdom of God. God wants everyone to be brought to the love of Jesus Christ. God wants everyone to hear about him and to be loved into his kingdom. So we see people in the chosen series on all sides, all spectrums of belief. We see people like Mary from Magdala, Mary Magdalene, who was demon-possessed, who was in the red light district, who had been abused and sold in many ways. We see her becoming an amazing disciple biblically. We see people like the fishermen, like the uh, four Peter, Andrew, James, and John, whose whose parents owned fishing businesses. We kind of see them in the middle. And, and, and over here at this other end, we see people who were wealthy and had their life together. We looked at Matthew. Matthew was a hated individual by his society and culture, but he had coin. He had convenience. He had comfort. He had all, all the conveniences of home kind of thing. We also see today someone who not only had all those wealth, all that wealth and riches, he also had prestige. He also had religious pride. He was a man people looked up to, a societal giant, someone we would say. So that's the net that God is casting from one end to the other. He's bringing them all in. And I'm thinking today, there might be some people in our reach that fit in that category, that kind of have, we would say, life together. They're not doing a jailhouse confession. <laughs> They're not at the bottom of the spectrum. They're more, but more, we would say, at the top. I mean, 
probably all of our culture and society would fit in that on a global level. <laughs> that we've got so many resources and so many opportunities. Let's jump into this and just start with, this is John chapter 3. John chapter 3. We're just going to look at the first four, seven verses and then jump down to verse 16 and 17 today. Uh, jot this down, the introduction. He starts off with one sentence, a sentence that gives us like five different facts about Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus's name itself means superior. <laughs> I mean, maybe his parents, you know, they were projective. They were, uh, they were subscribing to this. His name was superior. How many would name your kids superior? You know? <laughs> um, and... and and it did give him a, a destiny for where he was headed. Here's what the verse says. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Bre abbreviate that. Nicodemus is kind of a fun word, but Nick at night, you know? A ruler of the Jews. So let's tear that apart a little bit and think about, think about this some. Um, he, he represents those people who um, have it together in a lot of ways. This was a man of the Pharisees. The Pharisees was a group. There were two main uh, spiritual religious bodies. There were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Pharisees, they were probably more traditionally what we would expect from the Jewish nation. They, were, they believed in life after death. The Sadducees were similar, but they actually didn't necessarily believe in life after death. So that's why they say some people jokingly say, that was sad, you see. <laughs> and the Pharisees were fair, you see, but they weren't really very fair. We'll find that out as they deal with uh, Jesus and uh, people like Nicodemus. But this man was an insider, he actually was a member of the Sanhedrin. There were 70 Jewish leaders that ran their court system. Their court system. So it would almost be like our Supreme Court. It would be like our Supreme Court. And he would be like the high judge on the Supreme Court. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin had 70, that's what it means. They had 70 individuals that ran their court. They were not allowed to have regular government because they were under the occupation of Rome. Rome had all the political leverage, but they were able to run their own, especially religious courts. And so they had maximized that with the deal. This says he was a ruler of the Jews. That's the part that I mentioned with the Sanhedrin. He had, um, he had a lot of power. He was part of that wealthy and influential, highly established group. If you, if you looked at him, you would be thinking, you know, the Bill Gates or the, the Amazon leader, you know, kind of person in their culture. He would be at the very pinnacle and the top, both financially and, and influentially in their culture. And it's interesting that he finds an interest and still has a yearning for answers from Jesus. So he draws close. And I think that's a first good lesson we can learn is people who have it all together in society and in culture, 
still have, what's the Bible say? They still have the desire to be satisfied. They will hunger and thirst for righteousness and they will find the answer. Sometimes those conveniences, sometimes the wealth, sometimes those will hide the needs that we have deep inside, but they stick out. And from time to time, they bubble up to the top. And that's the way it happens with Nicodemus. So he comes to Jesus, this man. Um, I'm thinking about the birth of Jesus. I often think about the shepherds who were on the lowest end of society and culture. The shepherds were at the bottom culturally. And on the other end, the wise men. The wise men were the wealthy, the rich, the prosperous. And, and God brought them together in the uh, beginning of Jesus's earthly venture, I think to show the same thing he's showing with uh, us today with Nicodemus. There is no one outside the net, no one outside the throw of God's inclusion. And he's wanting to include everyone he, he, he can. You see, Nicodemus was the... He was the most religious of the religious. He was the most moral of the moral. He had all the bells and whistles that went with being on the top end of things. And he had a comfortable life. That's why it's so interesting to watch someone like that come to a relationship, come to an interview with Jesus. And that's exactly what happens. In fact, I call it the investigation when Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled, they shall be satisfied. They shall. He's got something going on inside of him that's yearning for something more. He's wanting to ask Jesus some questions. Now, he has already seen the miraculous. Remember last week we spent time on the healing ministry of Jesus? He's seen a variety of what God could do, and he mentions some of them. No one could do what you're doing unless God is with him, you know? And he's wanting to investigate the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done. This man came to Jesus by night. Circle that. That's the big question. You know, what did he come at night for? Was it so that others didn't see him? The stealth interview? Was it out of convenience because, you know, he's busy all day long and, you know, maybe he just needed a private message. So he was uninterrupted by the hubbub of people that were after Jesus all the time. He, um, you know, it's interesting. He came with questions. Questions. And boy, I just want to encourage you. Whenever you get a chance, wet people's appetite with questions. You know, Jesus was asked 183 questions in the gospel. Jesus was asked 183 questions in the gospel. 180 times Jesus answered with a question. What should that tell us? You know, questions are good. Questions whet the appetite. Questions bring about the investigation. And we want people to investigate the claims and the, and the person of Jesus Christ. I had a couple that was having their relatives over today. And, and they were like, we're kind of nervous because they don't believe in Jesus at all. 
And they're going to bring our whole family down. They're going to, they're going to make our whole house seem like we're unbelievers. And I said, think of three questions. Think of some questions you can bring in to their conversation. And as they did, they got excited. They got excited. Don't worry about making statements. Don't worry about trying to assert. Develop. Develop questions. That's the investigation part of it. When someone wants to know, here he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. So what's the, the, the spin is going? We know you're a teacher sent from God because no one could do these signs that you do unless God is with him. In a way, that's not a question. It's a statement, right? But deep inside that, que- inside that statement is a question. Who in the world are you? What are you about? How can you do this? I've seen a man get up from being lame from birth. As, as Brian just mentioned from John 9, I've seen a man who was born blind have his sight immediately. Who could do that unless God is with him? I mean, that's the question. Okay? Shouldn't we be using miracles in our lives, even the change that Jesus brings in our own life, to whet people's appetite? You see, see, that's the goal that we should all have. Instead of retiring and saying, well, I'm a privatized person. I've just got to keep everything to myself. What if we use the life God's given us, the joy he's given us, the miraculous power he's shown in our lives, even our salvation to whet people's appetite for Jesus? Oh, be just like this. I know God's up to something because I see it. I hear, you know, he says, be ready always to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. We should be such hopeful brothers and sisters that people look at us and go, I want that kind of hope. Where did you get it? How can I get it? Be yearning for the question, the investigation to be answered. Oh, brothers and sisters, if we were appetite wetters, (laughs) bringing that to the light, bringing that to being satisfied. So whether he came at night because of fear, we don't really hear, we don't really know, but it's mentioned three different times that it was at night, that he came at night, that he came at night. So there's the question that probably he's in a struggle. He's in a struggle between the world he lives in and the hunger he's got. The world he lives in and what he can see in the kingdom. And boy, that's a... A battle that's going on every day with every person you know. The world they've got and the kingdom of God at odds with one another, at, um, at, at, at conflict and at issue. Let's take another one here. <laughs> I love this verse. This is John 3, 3. Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is, what's the word? Born again. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. You want to see the kingdom of heaven, you've got to have a spiritual rebirth. Something taking place on the inside of you that gives you that spiritual rebirth. If you want to understand miracles, your life must become a miracle. Okay? If you want to understand what God is up to, you've got to let God be up to it in you. If you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Now, let me talk about this phrase a little bit. How many of you heard the word born again Christian? 
Raise your hand again. That's pretty redundant. You know what I mean? I mean, here's the truth. If you're born again, you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, you must be, what's it say? Born again. This would be like saying he's a tooth dentist. Well, of course he's a tooth dentist. What other kind of dentist is there? Or, or he's a, a boy male. You kind of go, well, of course. I mean, of course. I mean, it's, that's the reason. A born again Christian. It's the only kind of Christian there is, according to Jesus. If you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Now, there's other places that, that the Bible talks about being born again. But in the Gospels, this is the place. John chapter 3 is the focus that Jesus gives of being born again and being born anew. Now, what we usually mean when someone's a born-again Christian, typically in our culture, in our vernacular, it means they're a serious Christian. They're serious about this thing. They're not just playing games. They're not just on the roll. They're not just come and sit and soak and sour. <laughs> they're serious about it. I mean, they're like born again. I mean, they're like, life's, they're like, their life has changed. And that's the only kind that Jesus produces. <laughs> he, he, he's answering the question. He's going to answer the question. Truly, I say to you, Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. See, as Nicodemus is coming to him and wanting to know these questions and not have answers to these questions, how can you do this? He's saying, something's got to go on on the inside. Something's got to change and click for you to even know what's taking place, and how God is working in this world, in this business. When you are born again, you see the kingdom of God in different terms. You know, in reality, you and I, we're all nearer to death today than we were yesterday. In reality, it's important for all of us to not just live out our days, but to live out our days Seeing the kingdom of God, having spiritual eyes, having a heart that is born again and knows the truth of the Savior and of the Master. Answer this question Where are you going to be in a hundred years? <laughs> None of us will be here. <laughs> None of us will be here as we are here. That's sobering, isn't it? Where do we plan to reside? What is a, the kingdom all about? And so Jesus uses this illustration that every person on the planet can get into. I mean, we all understand birth, right? Do we? I mean, we don't understand it maybe, <laughs> but we've all participated. We've all been born the first time. We've all been born physically. So he's bringing this spiritual application to say, you've got to be born a second time. And uh, he wants us to understand spiritual birth because of our understanding of physical birth. In fact, Nicodemus brings it up. I call it the inquiry. It's one of our blanks there. <laughs> the inquiry. What's he say? He says, How? What do you mean, be born again? How does that happen? How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? 
He's just asking the logical question, isn't he? If this is a spiritual truth, it's got to be spiritually discerned. And so he's asking this question, how does it happen? How can that take, take place? Think about the parallels for a minute. Conception. You know, when, when, a, when a baby is conceived, a mother and a father, man or woman, come together, there's an opportunity for conception. What's the Bible say about conception? The Bible says the word of God, the word of God and the spirit of God come together and create, conceive. The conception takes place. In uh, 1 Peter 1.23, it says there's the incorruptible word of God that is the seed of the gospel. You know, that's how we're conceived. Nobody, nobody spiritually is conceived without the word of God and the spirit of God being as parents are to, to a child. There's a um, transmission of life. I mean, just think about the miracle of birth for a minute. Just like Robert G. Sanders and Eileen D. Sanders, my parents came together, and I'm the product of their togetherness. So God, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, come together to bring about the birth spiritually, the new birth, the rebirth of a person. And life is transmitted. Just like I have characteristics, whether I like them or not, whether my kids like them or not, whether my grandkids like them or not, of my parents, we have the characteristics of our heavenly father. We have the characteristics of God. It's designed that way. He says, you take on the nature of God himself and you um, share that life together. Our character is produced. You, you know, somebody will ask me, how do I know if I'm born again? How do I know if I have this life in me? I, I ask him some questions. First of all, do you love Jesus? Anyone who's born again <laughs> loves Jesus. Is your love for Jesus growing? Do you have that balance? What did God say? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is my beloved son. Hear ye him. Do you love Jesus? If you love Jesus, that's the start of being born again. Do you have a desire for godliness, holiness, you know, if you have a desire and a passion to be more like God, I'd say inside of you, you're being birthed anew. You're being born again. Not just practicing sin, the Bible says. Instead, practicing godliness, practicing holiness, practicing God, God's character. How about uh, the witness of the Holy Spirit in your life? That's gonna be one of those things that you can see and people can say that person belongs to the Heavenly Father. That person is born anew or born again. And I'd say a fourth thing is you got a desire to share the love that you have for Christ with others. If you don't have a desire to share, uh, the question would be there, is, is, is it really happening inside of you? So loving Jesus, desire for holiness, the witness of the Holy Spirit, and the desire to share are all parts of the character of God that are gonna get transmitted as you 
uh, live out the second birth, the second. Um, you know, the mention of growth. When a person is born again, they start to grow physically. You know, they've been grown for nine months in the womb. When they get outside the womb, they're growing. They're growing. And that's another uh, opportunity for us to sense, are we born again? Are we growing and, and commencing our growth um, and our expectations are, are changed. Let's, uh, let me show you a picture here. It's kind of upside down, but uh, that's the way the picture was taken. Last night I was over at Ezra and Michaela's. Some of you know Ezra and Michaela. They got married a year and a half ago, whatever it was, at uh, Jacob and Jennifer's house in home group, during home group. And uh, here they are just this week, just this month having a, a little one, their first uh, little one. They said, Pastor Bruce, can you come over? Can you pray for our baby? Can you just pray a blessing, a dedication? And I'm like thinking, you know, we're going to talk about new birth. <laughs> we're going to talk about babies being born and spiritual birth, you know, just like Ariel. His name's Ariel. Just like Ariel, we start out and we need to grow. We've got this opportunity to spiritually um, develop God's character, God's, God's love, God's, God's grace. Now, that, that's like moments after he's born, and that's actually um, Ezra, not, <laughs> that's Ezra's chest there, not uh, Michaela's. <laughs> Just someone asked me earlier. <laughs> uh, that's daddy uh, loving him. And, and this is a unique couple. And I, I solicit your prayers, but I just think it, it fits so well with what do we, what do we want to do with a baby? I mean, all the promise and the blessing that a baby brings to his parents and into the world, you bring to the kingdom of God. All the blessing and opportunity that a baby brings to his parents, you bring to God the Father and Jesus the Son. That's why he's saying you must be born again. Do you hunger and thirst for the truth? Do you desire to be satisfied and filled with godliness, with his life in you? Jesus says the instructions. This is verses five and six. Jot this down. The instruction he's going to give has to do with this born again and, and, and the elements involved. He says it this way. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water, and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. That's the way you know what being born again is all about. You can't enter. First he said you can't see the kingdom. Here, he doesn't say see. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. We don't want to have anybody stop at seeing, right? We want to see everybody enter the kingdom of God. See the kingdom and experience the kingdom. God's not satisfied until every one of us, everyone on the planet has the opportunity to be brought into the net, to be loved into his kingdom and to see and to experience, to see and to enter the kingdom of God. That's God's heart for us. He wants us with him 
forever. You see, you weren't made for this world. This world has sickness, disease, sorrow, death, all the things that we experience on the negative in this world, you weren't ultimately created for. You experience them here, but you were made for a different place. You were made for a place where there is no, the Bible says, sorrow, where there is no sickness, where there is no death. Death is swallowed up in victory. That's what you were made for. That's what we need to enter into, the kingdom of God, not just the kingdom of this world. God's pleasure is that you and I would be forever with him. The Bible says, I go to prepare a place that where I am, you will always be. I mean, that's the fellowship that he desires. He says, now we see like in a glass darkly, in a mirror dimly, in a foggy mirror. But then he says, you're going to see the heavenly father and the son face to face. I mean, that's the kingdom of God. You will know him fully and be fully known by him. That's the kingdom of God. He says, you must be born again to enter that kind of relationship. And nobody is excluded. Whether you're at the neediest end of the spectrum or the most wealthiest end of the spectrum, no one is left out of the net God is throwing of the desire God has to include. I say to you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again. That which is born of flesh is flesh. We understand that. And that which is born of spirit is spirit. Let's try one more here. Jesus is gonna illustrate with wind. He's gonna use wind as part of his illustration. He says, don't marvel to, that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants to. And you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So you can't see the wind, but you see the results of the wind. You can't see the Spirit of God, but you can see the results you can see the fruit of the wind of God, the spirit of God. That's what he's saying. It's an invisible force, but the, the product, the fruit, the life that comes from it is obviously um, seen, obviously observable. Let's talk about one more and then we'll see the, the, the clip here. He's gonna be, I'm gonna jump to verse 16. Now, this is the most famous verse in our culture when it comes to the New Testament or the Bible. I, I remember uh, Tim Tebow would put John 3, 16 on his little, you know, when he was playing football, the um, eye patch. What do you call those? You know, the shadow under his eye, you know. In the stadium at uh, Seahawk Games, you'd see someone hold up a card, say John three sixteen. okay. I mean, it's just in our culture and it's out there and it's inspiration because somebody would, I think of Martin Luther said, this is the gospel inside the gospel. This is the heart of the gospel that leads us to being born again. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his one and only son. Repeat that with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Isn't that amazing? That word love there, it's the word agape. For God so loved, agape the world. That's unconditional. That's <laughs> eternal. That love is forever. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him might not perish, shall not perish, but have eternal life. Look at verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. You know, but if we could get any, ask any question you want to get that response out of people's mind, because most people think religious folks and Jesus came to condemn the world, to put us down. No, just the opposite. The son did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to what? Save the world. Save the world. To save the world through him. Oh, brothers and sisters, if we could be the, the, the banner, the, 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 the chorus, the musicians that sing that song loudly, that no one misunderstands. God is not here to condemn. Christ is here to save his own description of himself. He said, I have come to seek and to save that which is lost, the lost ones, the gospel within the gospel. Let's take a minute and view this uh, clip from the, the chosen of Jesus and Nicodemus, or Nick at night. I don't know where to start. I have so many questions. I... Shall we sit first? Oh, yes. slums. Mm. Many wandering preachers have succeeded in gathering crowds with their rhetoric and fiery tone. I've heard a few of them over the years myself. So you know the type. Mm. But I have never heard anyone tell a paralytic to get up and walk, much less it actually happened. So what is your conclusion? I believe... You are not acting alone. No one can do these signs you do without having God in him. Only someone who has come from God. And how is that belief going over in the synagogue? <laughs> Which is why we are here at this hour. What else? What have you come here to show us? A kingdom. That is what our rulers are worried about. No, not that kind. Then what? A sort of kingdom that a person cannot see unless he is born again. Born again? Yes. You mean like a new creature? A conversion from Gentile to Jewish? No, no, that's not what I'm talking about. Then what is born again? <sighs> I hope you don't mean return to the womb, because that would be a problem for me. My mother, may she rest in peace, is dead. Truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, 
He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. That part of you, that is what must be reborn to new life. How can these things be? Ah, a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things, huh? I'm trying, Rabbi. I know. I know. Do you hear this? What? Listen. What do you hear? The wind. How do you know it's the wind? Because I can feel it. And I hear its sound. Do you know where it comes from? No. Do you know where it's going? No. That's what it is to be born again of the Spirit. The Spirit may work in a way that is a mystery to you. And while you cannot see the Spirit, you can recognize his effect. Mind is consumed with thoughts of what a stir these words would cause among the teachers of the law. Yes, and I do not expect otherwise. I speak of what I know and have seen, and it has not been received by the religious leaders. It is hard to receive. So if I have told you of earthly things, and you do not believe, how can I tell you heavenly things? I believe your words. I just fear you may not have a chance to speak many more of them before you are silenced. I have come to do more than speak words, Nicodemus. More miracles? Yes. But even more than that. Do you remember when the children of Israel complained against God and against Moses in the wilderness of Paran? Yes. They wanted to return to Egypt and they cursed the manna that God sent them. And then? They were bitten by serpents and they were dying. But? But God made a way for them to be healed. Moses lifted the bronze serpent in the desert, and people only needed to look at it. So will the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Our people are not dying from snake bites. They're dying from taxation and oppression. I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I did not come to deliver the people from Rome. And from what? From sin from spiritual death. God loves the world in this way, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So this has nothing to do with Rome. It's all about Sin. God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, Nicodemus. He sent him to save it through him. It's as simple as Moses' serpent on the pole. Whoever believes in him will not be condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Have you ever heard anything like this before? When I met Lilith, Mary, that day, I told my wife and my students she was beyond human aid. Only God could have healed her. And then I saw her healed. 
here you are. Either. I, my whole life, I have wondered if I would see this day. Follow me, and you'll see more. Follow you? Join me and my students. In two days' time, we leave Capernaum. Come see the kingdom I am bringing into this world. But I... I, I you have a position in the Sanhedrin. You have family. You are getting advanced in years. <laughs> I understand. But the invitation is still open. The invitation to what exactly? To lead a nomadic life, to... Give up who I am. It's true. There is a lot you would give up. But what you would gain is far greater and more lasting. Is this another one of your born-again mysteries? <laughs> Maybe. I know mysteries aren't easy for a scholar. Think about it. Hmm? Take your time. On the morning of the fifth day, we leave and we'll meet by the well in the southern quarter at dawn. Is, is this... Is the kingdom of God really coming? What does your heart tell you? swollen with fear and, and wonder. You can tell me nothing except that I am standing on holy ground. <laughs> holy roof. <laughs> I do hope you come with us. the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Powerful, huh? Yeah. Nick at night. Amazing. What happened then to Nicodemus? You know, in the story of the chosen, he struggles. He continues to struggle. I've got a couple of scriptures to encourage you about. That one of them, it shows Nicodemus basically standing up for Jesus later in, in Jesus' uh, gospel later in the narrative. I call it the involvement. And um, 
temple guards were, um, went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees, asked him, why do you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does. The guards replied, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, you mean he has deceived you also? The Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob has knows nothing of the law. There is a curse on them. Verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier, we'd say at night, was one of the ones that was one of their own number. And he asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him out to find out if he has been, what he has been doing? They replied, are you from Galilee? So he, he puts himself out there in a defensive way while Jesus is starting to be questioned and in a way tried by the uh, Pharisees. And so I, 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 you see some progress. One more time, Nicodemus is mentioned, and I want to bring this up to end with, and I call it the inheritance. It's the legacy that we can see of Nicodemus's life. And it goes all the way to the end of Jesus's life. Evidently, he was present at the crucifixion. He and another uh, wealthy gentleman, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, decided to take on the task of him preparing the body of Jesus for burial and burying him. He died at, Jesus died at three o'clock in the afternoon on Friday. Sundown was coming. They had a short period of time because they couldn't do any work. They couldn't do any um, preparation of the body after six. So in a three-hour span from three to six o'clock on what we call Good Friday, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea and maybe some others did some preparation. In fact, let me read this. This is 38 through 42 of John chapter 19. By, by the way, all of this is in uh, John's gospel. We're not hearing a lot about him until this uh, Good Friday time. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. You know, if they were just a criminal... Often they would just leave him hanging for days, weeks on end, just because it was to be a deterrent. Sometimes they would just take him off and they'd pitch him in this um, pile of burning rubble that just burned all the time. They called it Hades. You know? And they would just throw the body in there. In this case, they asked Pilate if they could take the body of Jesus down and uh, and and give it a proper burial. It's kind of like it's going from uh, what Philippians says. He was humiliated. He went to the lowest of the low. And then the Bible says, and yet God highly exalted him. This is, the, this is the place where it changes. He goes from being fully humiliated to in a way, here comes the um, resurrection. Here comes the exaltation. Before long, that empty, that tomb is gonna be empty that, jo that uh, Joseph is loaning to him. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus. Catch that? Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. It appears that J Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were on somewhat of the same page. They were disciples, but they were trying to play both ends against the middle. They were trying to be 
both disciples of Jesus and Pharisees at the same time. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus, what? At night. It's going back to that scene that we just saw from the chosen. Nicodemus brought a mixture. And here's what Nicodemus does. He brings a mixture of myrrh and aloes. Where's that word myrrh come from? Don't you remember the uh, birth of Jesus and the kings and the wise men? And what did they bring? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It was commonly used in burials. If uh, they had no other embalming, the, the, the body began to uh, putrefy, began to smell. And so these were uh, elements we would, we would think of as uh, essence of oils or whatever for that. He was there, and look what he does. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. We're talking about a small fortune here. You know what a, you know what a little bottle of myrrh costs? You know, if you just buy a little bit today, it's going to be, you know, 100 bucks. 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it. I'm just thinking of the tender moments. So here's Nicodemus, who not only heard Jesus talk about the snake on the pole, and Jesus saying, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. I came to forgive sin. He saw Jesus extended on the cross. He saw Jesus give his life on the cross. He knew about the Passover lamb, that they were heading into Passover, and he saw the lamb of God that John had proclaimed being slaughtered once and for all. In fact, as they wrap him up, you know what they're doing? They're becoming unclean themselves. They're touching a dead body. That means they cannot observe the Passover. They cannot lead like they're supposed to lead because of the mores and the, the uh, laws of their day and of their age. They were missing, in a way, the cultural Passover, but they were celebrating the once and for all death of the Lamb of God. The Bible says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Passover lamb was designed to roll the sins ahead for one year, to roll the sins one more year in advance. And every year they had to sacrifice another lamb to roll the sins forward. But they knew the Messiah was coming. They knew Jesus would be here. They knew the lamb of God would take away the sins of the world, not roll them ahead, not kick the can down the road, but they would obliterate. Jesus would obliterate the sins, and that's what he got to witness and to see. They wrapped the body of Jesus with these spices in strips of linen in accordance with what the Jewish burial customs of their day were. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden was a new tomb, Joseph's tomb, we know from Matthew, in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Jesus didn't need the tomb for very long, did he? You know, on the third day, he rose 
from the dead. You only needed to borrow the tomb for Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Here you see, I think I call it the inheritance. The, the, the long-lasting picture of Nicodemus is one of care and faith, trust and exaltation of who Jesus was and of who Jesus is. Let me just end with these thoughts to you. First of all, what an unusual and unlikely whosoever Whosoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. You know, Nicodemus is one of those unusuals. And yet, I think there's probably more people like Nicodemus than we sometimes think. There is a price in following Jesus. In Nicodemus's case, it was his comfort. It was his security. It was his pattern of lifestyle. That was where he struggled to give up and to follow and to pay the price of following Jesus. What did Jesus say, though? No one will leave father and mother home that won't be rewarded 10 times, 100 times over what they give up. There is a price. Jesus said, count the cost. Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me. And it's good to count the cost, but it's also good to note the reward, the inheritance, what there is in store for us. And trusting in Jesus, like the serpent on the pole, you trusted that that look would save you, Jesus on the cross. That's where all of our salvation lies. Not um, our pedigree, not our giving, not our law keeping, not being a good person. As much as we want to strive to be good people, that's not where our salvation is. Our salvation is 100% in trusting. And it may be harder for a person that's on this end of the scale to put their full trust in Christ. It's so easy for them to trust themselves, to trust their culture, to trust their society, to trust their religion. And wherever we're at, in the net that God is spinning, the net that God is casting, he's calling us to do one thing, trust the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. Wherever you're at in that today, invite the team up to sing a song to conclude with. We're gonna sing this. Um, From the day he saved my soul. Now, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this model, this example of Nicodemus. Thank you for where he stood in the big picture of things. And thank you that you showed yourself strong to him and you called him to yourself. Thank you that we have an example of uh, his trust of you. Would you, Heavenly Father, show us how we might trust you more today, how we might follow you completely today, no matter what we have to give up, that um, our becoming, being born again is all that matters ultimately. Heavenly Father, use us to show others your way as well. In Jesus' name, amen.